Welcome, everybody, to Debt Talk Live, and it is my pleasure and honor tonight to welcome our very special guest, writer, director, producer, Michael Nader. Michael, how you doing? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm doing great. Very excited to have you here on the show with us. Uh, I'll tell you why. I have not had a chance to talk to a lot of writers, and I really want to get into the aspect which is one of the most critical pieces, in my opinion, of any film or television show, and that is the writing. So let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about the toll. Uh, tell us what inspired you to the end of writing that script. Totally, yeah. So uh, I had been, since I graduated from U.S. film school, I've been kind of trying to make my way as a writer in the industry, um, and sort of for your viewers, I'm sure there's a range of kind of people being aware and, and unaware, but it's a very, it's a very challenging part of the industry. Um, kind of no matter your, you know, I went to a very sort of high pedigree film school and even then it's incredibly difficult. Basically, it's all about kind of meeting the right people and, uh, and creating the right friendships. And so I met, uh, this guy who was also a writer and, and had more recently been working as an independent producer and his name is Will Frank. Um, and he encouraged me and, and was, you know, became a mentor of mine and in regaling me with the, the stories of his own career was kind of uh, um, indicating to me he believed it would be prudent of me to start uh, with a script that was small enough that we could go out and make it for very little, almost no money. And I think a lot of young filmmakers are hesitant to try and go make a movie for let's say quarter of a million or half a million dollars because it doesn't seem like it's possible to make a good film for that amount of money. I had other writers tell me you shouldn't do this because you should wait until you have the, the kind of capacity to make a bigger movie. Um, but my mentor will convince me. And so I went and basically said, how can I write a story that is as small and intimate and personal and not very expensive, but also reveals what I want to express as a writer and as a director, um, and that can still function as a as a great story and a, and a hopefully a, a you know an effective film. And so, it really, I I was sort of just kind of going through, uh, you know, I sort of began with the setting, right, of, of um, sitting in a car. I, that was the, the very first image that came to me was the opening shot, which was. The idea you could have an opening shot where you see a, a uh, rideshare app and a driver who is uh, hidden from us sort of swipes no on two male passengers and yes on a female passenger. And that was the, the opening kind of the, the germ of the idea, which then I said, oh, and wouldn't that be great if you could have an, a full extended suspense sequence that is entirely uh, about this kind of claustrophobic relationship between the driver who we still don't see or know and a passenger who we start to get little bits of information about. And then I said, what if I could make and write the entire movie just based on that relationship? And on some level, I was enticed by how I felt I could write that quickly. It felt, and I did, I wrote the first 15 pages in the, the night that I even first sort of had the idea because I was excited and, and just uh, tantalized at the notion that you could kind of really keep the audience in that, in that car. And then, so it really was, as I was writing it, it was, it was a very exploratory process. A lot of what was ending up on the page was some, were, were things that I, I wasn't necessarily pre-planning. Um, and I think in a way that lends itself to 
a more organic, at least for me, it, it felt like an organic process that I, I was able to surprise myself in writing it. And I was able to kind of uh, create this mythology in a way that the character that was consistent with how the characters were discovering it. Um, and so that was really, it was a very organic, very kind of natural process beginning with the kind of relationship between the driver and the passenger and then growing into wanting to give them a supernatural threat to put them into a classical horror film so that they could then be forced to uh, team up and get to know each other, which would be our, our sort of structuring relationship. That's awesome. Uh, like I told Max Toplin last week, who was our guest, uh, the toll, what makes the toll so fascinating is it's sort of like two stories in one. You have the mythology of the toll man, Okay, and then you have uh, the characters themselves and them dealing with uh, their issues, okay? And I told you it was brilliantly done by you, written, because it leaves the door open to so many possibilities moving forward. Uh, I want to know more about the Toll Man. I want to know more about either before or a backstory on the Toll Man or put a different set of people in the tall man's path. Was that a consideration when you were writing the script? Yeah, it quickly became a consideration. You know, I think in any situation where you have a story uh, that has a mythology, that the kind of next thing you might, that might occur to you is that there's franchise potential. Um, I certainly, you know, I, I don't inherently, I think this can be a blessing and a curse. I don't inherently have a kind of, uh, I'm not as commercially minded as certainly producers would be or someone like Max would be. So I didn't necessarily kind of arrive at the story and immediately say this is a franchise. But certainly as I was creating mythology, what you sort of quickly realize is I want to keep fleshing this out. And I want to see more, you know, I like these characters and I like obviously Cammy and Spencer consigned to this movie. But the Toll Man and the world of the Toll Man is intentionally much larger and and there's a lot going on there's a lot of mystery that's unresolved and so for me to be writing those characters i'm also compelled to say you know i want to see i also wanted to, to kind of explore that more because the other thing about this movie is that you know it, it behooves the story to be very kind of limited in how much it reveals about the tall man you know i think i want to weaponize the audience's imagination against them on some level and that means I'm not going to be giving a whole lot of backstory and a whole lot of information and a whole lot of, and, and also there isn't a whole lot of visual, uh, you, you know, you don't see the Toll Man for very long in the movie. The runtime, you know, I think there's possibly three setups involving the Toll Man in the entire movie. Um, and that's, you know, on some level, that's a financial thing, but also it's built into the ethos of the movie, which is... Um, a horror movie that is low budget is going to need to be operate on this, this style of, of hiding things from the audience. And, I, and so, Oh, go on. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I was just no, going to say, I loved how it was done because I love that. We have questions after the movie's done. Is the tall man a single entity? Because we saw groups of people. Is, is that all him? Is he, the, is he a, a spirit trapper? Every person that goes his way, does he trap their soul? Like I said, the possibilities are endless. Now, mm-hmm. uh, diving into the supernatural, paranormal realm, and you as a writer having to come up with this, did you use any inspiration to create the Toll Man, the mythology of the Toll Man? Totally, yeah. So I can, uh, there's lots of answers to that question. I'll give you a kind of a streamlined uh, rundown. So basically, 
uh, the, the mythology and, and just the idea of having this kind of eponymous character um, of this type. Certainly, you know, there are a lot of those kinds of characters in recent horror movies now. And I think we all owe a, a, most of that to, you can sort of, you can trace it back starting to H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. right? And then you go through Clive Barker and Stephen King. And certainly there's a lot of other sort of more human, um, you know, there's like the slasher characters that are a little bit different, a little bit kind of a different category. But I think Lovecraft is a big influence. I think Hellraiser certainly was a big influence. Clive Barker. Um, I, I, and Clive Barker. Have you ever had the pleasure of listening to Clive Barker talk? Not in person, which I would love to. I've certainly listened to his interviews, and he's fantastic. I've seen him at in conventions in the 90s, and he is the most normal-looking person, but he has the most twisted mind and imagination uh-huh. you could possibly imagine. But please continue. Please continue. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, I owe an enormous debt to him and his... I mean, you know, pioneering, obviously, with Hellraiser and also with Candyman, and, you know, just the, the, the whole um, aesthetic of having these kinds of... I think it really, and I don't know, I, I'm not actually sure about his what he would report as his influence, but I certainly think you can see Lovecraft and take, you know, you can take the cosmic horror of Lovecraft and then kind of filter it down into these more sort of like single characters or groups of these, like ensembles of these characters. Um, so that's kind of, and you know, and I have been exposed to a lot of those kinds of characters as well through just my love of all things horror and not just movies. I mean, that that will be a sort of a defining theme of whenever I'm talking about horror is that I'm insistent that we start paying more attention to uh, the the things outside of just the out of film. Yeah. So you know, horror literature in particular, but then also things like uh, horror theme park attractions that I think are denigrated unfairly, but have contributed a lot, or at least in sort of Halloween Horror Nights, there were years of Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando, and I'm from Florida, and so of course it's in my backyard, uh, where they were doing amazing work on, on creating original characters and entire mythologies that were created for these attractions that you then and I would sort of follow along each summer as they were slowly releasing the storylines of these events, which you then get to see it's not just extrapolated onto a movie, it's extrapolated into an entire environment that you're interacting with. I mean, that was incredible and felt like it was moving, you know, the genre forward in, in ways that I was very inspired by. And, and you know, I think Barker was a big influence and Lovecraft was a big influence on, on them. And, you know, I, so I think all of those things sort of culminated in, okay, you're going to have this sort of eponymous horror character, which again, nowadays you would see similarities that you would say, I think a lot of viewers are going to say, oh, it's sort of like Slenderman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mr. Boogie from Sinister, right? And the Babadook. And certainly, you know, and I, I think uh, it would be easy for me to say those are my influences, but I think the truth is we all have the same influences and it's kind of the people that I just described, right? Um, so that, that all said, you know, with what I, I sort of went, well, what's the character going to be? And the main influence uh, was actually something from history, which was I wanted to kind of bring in the folkloric figure of the kind of highwayman mm-hmm. or the highway robber, which in the Middle Ages was fascinating and, and particularly uh frightening because that you know when going out on a a main road was a a truly kind of dangerous uh endeavor you would have these kind of highway robbers that would come out from the trees and kill you you know 
And I was sort of researching that, and uh, there was a sort of a synonym for highwayman that was used in this time called the gentleman of the road. Uh, And I saw that phrase, and I was like, that is a horror character if I've ever uh, seen one. And so that that was really the the root of it was, I think this all was happening at the same time when I, like, after I had started writing the script, I was, like, rooting around. I found Gentleman of the Road, and I was like, that's character right there. And even in the original script, that that name was in there originally, and then I realized it's too much of a mouthful, and he then became the Toll Man. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Uh, As you were writing the script, in particular the Toll Man, I know every writer has their own techniques, methods, and what inspires them to create. Uh, Before you started even writing the first line, did you have a very clear idea on how you wanted to start the middle and end it, including that great plot twist? Or did it come to you as you started, as you got into it? Yeah, so uh, more the latter. And I, you know, it's an interesting thing where I think as any writer, you're going to have a little bit of a, of, of guilt about, oh, did I, certainly in an academic sense, we're trained that we're very much supposed to have everything worked out. And I have just never, I always thrive on not knowing what's coming in the next few pages. And that kind of, and I do this less now. It's funny, I think it's been conditioned out of me over the last, you know, I wrote the script in 2017 and I, I, I was very much a kind of young, uh, reckless writer back then. But, but I think there were really, there were cool things that came out of that. One of which being that like this whole story really was a matter of me going, okay, I know what the first act is. And I know, so I know who these two people are and I know that they're going to have uh, this really uncomfortable ride. I didn't necessarily know wh- how that was going to play out. I just, I, I let that kind of come out in the writing. And then I said, okay, I know that they're going to break down. Um, but I didn't really know at that when I started writing where it was going to go from there, other than that it was going to go into a supernatural horror thing of some kind. Um, so it was, it was fairly like kind of natural in that sense. At which point in the writing did that whole Spencer plot twist come to you? It is funny, yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I'm sure this uh, goes into there. If people is iron, this will just sort of add to their the fuel their fire. But it really, I I felt it was at around page 45, so around halfway through, um, and I had not yet figured out if if there was going to be a twist or what the twist was going to be. And at that moment, I said, "Oh, like it was just a bolt from the blue. Like, of course, the most." And I, I really stand by it now, and I love yeah. Twist. But it was not until halfway through that I realized that that was the right way to end it. And I, you know, I sort of wanted a reversal. Sometimes, though, I'm like, well, I don't want to marry myself to the idea of having a twist because I think twists can be over relied upon. You know, we can sort of, uh, especially horror film or filmmakers, can kind of see that as a bit of a cop out. So I wasn't necessarily sure I was going to have one. Uh, and I also think the, the nature of this twist is that it's one that is hiding in plain sight the whole time and if anything i have even like already announced it to you right and like early on the movie before telling you convincing you that that was all uh uh red herring yeah yeah what i loved about this movie is that yeah it starts out suspiciously with a guy swiping left till he comes up upon a very pretty young woman so that's right there it's like okay this guy uh yeah there's something wrong and then yeah. Tammy gets in the car. They're driving for a long time. Spencer is very awkward. Uh, but within 10, 15 minutes into the movie, I found myself, I'm like, Spencer, come on, snap out of it. Let her know that you're not a psychopath. 
okay? Mm -hmm. And it's those kind of plot twists where I'm rooting for these two to become friends, to trust each other, to mm -hmm. realize that they need each other to get out of this situation, and then to just have it just, boom, blow up in your face. Uh, I think mm -hmm. the most simplest plot twists are the best because the majority of the movie, we're here, I was rooting for Spencer to, you know, get Cammy to trust him. And it's that obvious twist that I did not see coming that came to fruition. Brilliant. I just absolutely, thank you. Absolutely brilliantly done. So when it came up to the visual representation that we saw of the Toll Man, it sort of brought mm -hmm. me back a little bit to Friday the 13th Part 2, when uh, Jason yeah. was wearing that burlap sack uh, mask mm -hmm. before he got the hockey mask. Uh, yep. When you're writing the script, are you also narrating what the characters like the Toll Man is going to look like as well? Yes, definitely. That, you know, I obviously once you get to sort of pre-production and once you have your department head, everything is going to shift to some degree where you're going to collaborate with talented artists who are going to bring a lot of their own work. And our costume designer, Nathan Law, has brought a lot to Tollman. But I think it's all very true to the spirit of what's described in the script, which is, I mean, there were certain things that kind of just needed to be, that, that the Tollman needed to have. I mean, there were sort of some guiding principles. One of which is just that, I mean, I think these characters are tricky and they can easily fail, right? Like they can easily be kind of unintentionally goofy or they can be, yeah, you know, all horror is sort of balancing on, on the edge uh, between terrifying and ridiculous. Yeah. And so there needed to be certain things about the tool man that would protect against that. One of which is just that he needs to kind of be uh, uncanny in the sense of just almost inhuman. It's not a completely new, crazy thing. Sometimes those monsters work, but I think in this case, he needed to be mostly humanoid and kind of wearing, a, you know, I, I wanted a kind of man in white figure. And in particular, you know, you see him, first time he's out of focus. Mm -hmm. That's another very sort of conscious choice, right, is that he's being revealed gradually through the movie. Because at first, it, you know, the other important thing about that first act is you're not sure yet if it's supernatural or a human threat. And it's, we're really leaning pretty hard into the possibility that this could just be people. Mm -hmm. So it needs to, we need to delay for a little bit the reveal, the sort of seeing the tall man's face to see that he has this kind of otherworldly fungal kind of material that's like more cosmic horror. Um, and so that, I mean, definitely was all, you know, I don't know that we necessarily had the, the specific texture of the, uh, of the face and certain things like that yet in the script, but certainly just knowing that he was kind of a, you know, he had sort of a blank face with just a smile and a white kind of outfit and was somewhat asymmetric. That was very much in the script. And again, that gets just built upon and built upon in the sort of pre-production phase. Oh, uh, that's, I love that. I love finding out how it comes. Now, you finished the script, right? You've got a finished script. What was your next step after that in regards to the toll? So I took the script. I basically, you know, Will Frank had said to me, had given me this kind of assignment, like, go write us something that we could make for $250,000. Um, and then, so I took him the script. I had not given him a pitch or a log line or an outline or anything, which again, now I see that. I look back and I think that's crazy. Oh, mostly I think it's crazy that I handed him basically the first draft and he said, this is fantastic. Let's go make it. 
which was sort of shocking to me only because nobody ever likes, you know, any script that's ever sent to a producer, right? It's always uh, a long process and we'll immediately kind of glommed onto it, which I, which was a very validating thing because I also felt like I kind of, we had something there. Um, and so then, I mean, it was incredibly fortunate for me and then I got to essentially sit back uh, and let Will go do his thing where he just said, because he had produced eight other independent films at that point all very small budgets but that had all gotten into, you know, mostly gotten to major festivals. So he basically said, all right, let me just think about it. Um, and then, you know, it was about a year later that he sort of figured out the, the right way to do it, which was he called me and was like, you know, there's these two awesome producers uh, who are also great actors. And he basically was like, okay, I want you to look them up right now because uh, are they not dead ringers for Spencer and Cammy? I mean, that was the very first was like me just looking up the two of their work and being, they are those roles. And, and so it was really Will cast the movie in that sense. Will basically said like, this is such a perfect, like they would be phenomenal for these roles. They'd be phenomenal as producers. Let's all partner up. And it would be, that's like, you know, it just felt like the right kind of this small team that could go and make a movie. So, so that all, it, you know, it all worked out uh, better than I ever could have uh, expected in that sense. So that's when you teamed up with Max and, and Jordan. So you got the team together. Now, from that point, when did you find out that you're going to be directing this thing? So, I mean, it was, it, there were two kind of different, you know, there, there's the moment at which we, we went into it right away saying that I would direct it. And thankfully, Max and Gordon were on board with that from the beginning because I also showed them a short that I had directed. That uh, So it was kind of a package. We sent them my short, we sent them the script, and we sent them a, a pitch deck that I had made for the toll. And so they were immediately on board with me directing it. And then in terms of obviously getting a movie funded even a very low budget movie is incredibly difficult to get i mean it's like you know the running theme like everything in the industry is very hard uh and so i didn't really expect anything i kind of put it out of my mind um i think we met with them in march of 2018 and then it was august of 2018 when we got the green light which essentially meant the money was in the bank and we were ready to go which i which just blew me away and not just you know i knew that the two of them were incredibly skilled producers and we're going to if anybody can do it they could but i had such a belief that you know i i didn't want to it was so kind of good too good to be true that i would get to go and direct this script that i also wrote um so that was when it and it, it was very fast you know we that's when we found out and then we were shooting a month and a half later that is so awesome uh so i mean now let's switch over to the directing part. You've done some, mm -hmm. you, I mean, this was this your first full feature? I know you've done a lot of shorts. Yeah. This was your first. This is my directing debut, yeah. Okay, now uh, explain to us what's bringing to life your vision uh, as a director, something that you created on paper. What's that like? Yeah. I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is, is that process began when I started writing the script. Um, I mean, particularly in this case, when I knew I intended to direct it, if it was going to happen, um, the writing was incredibly influenced by how I felt that I wanted to convey things. And the perfect example being the whole like long take opening shot was very much part and parcel of the script. I mean, that was, I just knew I want, you know, there, there were uh, so many things in the script that were already kind of, um, that I, I was doing the directing work already then. 
And so now, and on that level, it's kind of there's part of it where part of the process where writing and directing are kind of fused together, mm-hmm. and then editing is kind of fused into it as well. That you know, it's sort of like those are the three kind of acts of making a movie. Um, but like that said, certainly once we got, you know, it was about a month before we were greenlit, and it was when I finally was hearing rumors that we might actually be getting the money. That then I actually sat down and I started to. I mean, it really was just a kind of almost entirely in my head process at first of just sitting down and going, okay, what is this going to look like? You know, what what are the exact shot by shot, essentially kind of fabricating it in in my brain on like, you know, in a sort of mental animatic, I guess. And then going, okay, I mean, part of this also is like, what can we achieve, obviously? Because I I knew at that point what our budget was going to be. And so I was very kind of like, all right, I... I, I had stylistic ideas where it was like, we need to be very minimalist. We need to like really lean into kind of long takes and, and sort of sitting back and having a very light hand directorially because of all of those things. Well, you know, that tends to be the style I like anyway, but that's also more kind of financially, it's more doable. I mean, one of the big terrors, right, you have is that like, it's possible you could, it's only 15, it's a 15 day shoot and it, it, there's always a possibility. What if we don't get a coherent story? Mm-hmm. What if we're missing you know, if the bedroom scene didn't get to get shot, we wouldn't have a movie and we would just, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here, right? And so on some level, you have to be thinking about it as as an assistant director and as like a scheduler as well. Um, So that's kind of, you know, those are the two things going on in my head is like, what do I want this to look like? And then how can I achieve this? And that was sort of the big like opening part of that, of the director's problem. So when the last scene was was done and it was a wrap, uh, you know, you guys probably had a little celebration. Did you stay with the film during the editing process? Yes. So I actually edited it myself. Um, it was sort of a strange, yet another kind of uh, a part of the, you know, when your ragtag uh, team of, uh, of indie filmmakers, that there are things like that that just sort of make sense where it's like I would effectively be editing it anyway if I were sort of in a situation like this. Uh, where I could have gotten an assistant editor, but it was kind of like, we might as well. I, so I was kind of the one, you know, in the avid, right? Which was, was good for me because I also, editing was kind of my, my production focus in film school. Mm-hmm. So that all worked out nicely for me. Um, so yeah, so I stayed with it. I mean, and if anything, the very intense part of the process actually was uh, doing that first cut because you know, you just don't know that you have a movie. I was pretty sure, you know, I got off set and I was like, I'm pretty sure we've got it. Uh, and it's very binary, right? It's like either we got everything that we needed or we didn't. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of room to kind of uh, uh, luxuriate in multiple and a lot of good takes. You know, we had, I kind of, we basically had one great take of every shot. And that was all that I knew we had time for. So when it came time for me, to, it was, you know, me sitting in a room on my computer putting together the first cut desperately hoping and racing through it because i was so eager to find out is this going to work or not and you know thank goodness i reached the end and was like okay we're good <laughs> oh god that's awesome uh i love this information i you know so i'm asking i'm just fascinated by how yeah, it's yeah. done so now the editing's done you actually have a final product do you turn it over now to uh, Max and Jordan since they're the, you know, they're producing, they're the ones that secured the funding, and is it their job to try to get the movie into festivals? Yes. 
So for the most part, I mean, we all kept in very close contact this whole time. So there was a, it, it never really felt like it was kind of leaving me in a way. Like I, I mean, I think um, certainly for my part, I always wanted to be very involved and to know uh, much as it's an overused metaphor, I want to make sure my child is being shepherded off into the world by safe, you know, by, by safe means. And so of course I wanted to, to know uh, and, and, you know, contribute to the conversation about all of our strategy. But essentially, I mean, it was entirely Max and Jordan's brilliance and their strategic uh, just wisdom that led to us to the, the whole sequence of events, as I'm sure Max probably described, although maybe he uh, understated his own uh, uh, how sort of smart they were, because it really was a great method of we originally found a sales agent. And then the sales agent helped us on our festival run. So I think it, there's an easy instinct of filmmakers to go, oh, well, I'll just submit it on without a box. And that's a really hard thing to ever even, you know, get your movie seen. Whereas what you really have to do is, is be really clever about having, you know, screenings of your movie. And of course, you need people to like your movie and you need to get sales agents to see it. So there's a lot of like uh, on the ground publicity and sort of marketing that goes into that. So you need the people to like see the movie, like it, and then you need to sort of work with a sales agent who can then then becomes a sort of partner in the process. Did it go through the film festival circuit during or before COVID hit? Well, it was interesting because essentially South by was the very end of our, uh, of our circuit. You know, we, we uh, were waiting, and this is another part of the sort of strategy, is you want to wait for a really big premiere. So we didn't even submit to, we only submitted to the very biggest festivals. And just as it happened, when we started submitting, it was right after South by of 2019. Okay. So, so we went through the whole, you know, we, we it was sort of Kiss and Sundance and uh, other sort of similar really big festivals, which are, you know, all of them. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get into any of these things. Um, and and also there were moments where we were deciding not to submit some big ones because we really our sales agent was very intent on South by as a target. And so, and so, it, I mean, it even makes it all the more just ironic and poetic, I guess. The whole time we were aiming for South by, and then we got into South by, and it was like, this is every our dreams have come true. And then, of course, you know, what what else would happen but a pandemic okay, that would yeah. cause the entire world to shut down, including, of course, South by. <laughs> so the movie in South by was did it get virtual screenings? I mean, uh, was South? I don't remember in twenty. Uh, when COVID hit, was South by uh, uh, virtual or did they cancel it altogether that year? So they had a virtual thing. Um, most features opted out of it. I mean, just in terms of, uh, of a sort of industry strategy, it was just going to be hard. You know, there weren't going to be, you weren't going to get the benefits of what you normally would get from a festival, which is buyers in the audience. Um, and so most movies said, so I think they did something with Amazon Prime where and it was mostly short where if you wanted to just get an audience you could do that so we opted out so that we could then but what we did do that again was brilliant on the part of max and jordan was we basically said we're going to forego you know even though we have not had a festival premiere we'll just forego that entirely and look at it as if south by was our premiere mm -hmm. and just aggressively go after uh, buyers just with the publicity that we got off of South by and even South by being canceled. And that, you know, that worked for us, which was awesome. That is awesome. Uh, I watched the movie on Voodoo. Okay. So after the, the festivals, 
When did you find out, and who is actually the official distributor of the toll? So the distributor is Saban Films, and they are fantastic. So they essentially came on board in uh, April of 2020. So that, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty fast, um, you know, sort of mercifully for us where we're all on tenderhooks. We, we didn't have to wait too long to sort of find out if we were going to have a home. And so uh, we had, you know, we had a decent amount of buyer interest. Um, with a little bit of, you know, some, you know, somewhat competitive. And then Saban kind of uh, was who we ended up going with. And so they, they sort of uh, decided to buy us in April. And then, you know, then the process begins of they go through their motions of getting everything set up and figuring yeah, out. Basically, you leases. turn everything over to them at that point. Yes. 100%. At that point, it's very much like it's kind of in there. Mm-hmm. They are, they, they get to make a lot of the decisions. Um, really, they, they become the sort of authority on, all right, we're, you know, we're going to get this movie out to the world and trust us. And that, and we did, and, and it all worked out awesome. Now, do you feel the whole experience writing, directing, going through the film festival circuit, getting hooked up with Saban, has that, did, did you already know all that, or was this a, a, a big learning experience for you? Huge learning experience, for sure. I mean, I think there are certain things that I... You know, I think a big part of my preparation for uh, directing a movie and one of the only reasons why I felt content or, or at ease knowing that I could do it is that I had also written two other features that had gotten produced and uh, two close friends were the directors um, separately. There was so two movies and each of them I was friends with the director and I kind of got to observe the process pretty closely so a lot of the stuff that I hadn't known before, I was able to learn through observing the, those two movies get made. Um, and then also, you know, I, mean, I think just once I was uh, able to, to like be, you know, comfortable embracing the process, there were so many things that I learned, which, you know, you kind of just roll with it. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, no, there were enormous things that I learned and, and, certainly chief among them were the things that I, you could never have learned from anybody, which is how do you navigate the film industry yeah. and the only time that movie theaters have ever been closed, including World War II. I mean, it's truly, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's hard to overstate how crazy it is to be kind of trying to be navigating the film world in, a, in like an actually unprecedented, I mean, you know, it's, it's unprecedented in a number of ways, but really the industry has never quite seen something in this no same category and so bizarre everybody was coming everybody every studio everybody was trying to come up with your your unique ways to continue business going in this horrible time that we're going through so yeah now that saban owns the toll i'm sure you as a writer now going back to your writer you have ideas on you know if this does go into a prequel or a sequel you might have even i'm not asking you to give it away but you might have even started putting stuff on paper already uh for a prequel or a sequel to the toll uh does saban now have exclusive rights to any sequels and whatnot uh, that's a question. See, that's more of a max question. I don't know definitively. I know it's, it's all kind of complicated. Um, I do know that the decision is out of my hands and I think it might actually be more in Matt and Jordan's hands, Okay, but I'm not the, the point at which it went, it sort of transferred. I kind of transferred that decision to Max and Jordan. So that's kind of the reason why I don't even necessarily know the answer. Um, but also as with any situation like this, there would need to be kind of for it to make sense. Unless I guess, you know, if I really die hard wanted to, 
if I wanted to kind of just make my career or my early career all about Tollman, I could have, you know, I could have that movie ready to go, right? And then like really like attack the town, you know, go out and be like, this is, you know, we've got this movie. But I think, you know, with sequels in this vein, um, it tends to be more a matter of having kind of preliminary buyer interest of somebody saying, um, and I, you know, and I'm not 100% sure if there is or isn't yet. Um, and certainly if these things will evolve, but I think it would take somebody kind of coming to us and saying we would love to see uh, a sequel or a prequel. And certainly I would love to be a part of that in any way that I am permitted to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, I think on some level, for me, I, I am very proud of this movie and I love this movie and the world, but I also am kind of eager and ready to keep keep moving and kind of keep doing more projects and diversifying and, and sort of exploring other niches of the genre. And so I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, I don't necessarily have my eyes glued to the toll too, but I, again, I'm open. so very open to it. Yes. Now, uh, you being a diehard fan, a diehard fan, sorry, diehard horror fan like I am, mm -hmm. You, we've all seen the horror movies, great movies, and then in the last few minutes, they try to add this, um, how do I call it, this twist, just to leave the possibility of a franchise maybe developing. The beauty of the toll is, you didn't have to do that. The whole movie itself, as I explained earlier, begs the viewers who watch it to want to know more. Now, without revealing anything, would you uh, prefer to see if this franchise continues to put a whole different group of people in the tall man's path? Or would you like to see a story that just explores the mythology of the tall man? Now, if you can yeah, separate yourself as the writer, and what would you like to see? Yeah, I think I, I would... For me, it's a relatively easy choice of seeing another person or group of people in the Tolman's past in a new, bigger way. I mean, it's really an end. I'm not even necessarily giving anything away because nothing is set in stone, but I can just tell you my instincts are very much, I think you need to take a big step up in a way to make a sequel uh, and to kind of re reinvent it on some level because, I mean, it's also almost, um, this is sort of maybe an odd comparison, maybe not. I think of the Saw franchise, which obviously you can certainly say lots of things about the directions in which the franchise went. But I think what they knew about what, you know, what's great about the first movie is that the twist is kind of a big part of, like not knowing what the twist is, is a big part of enjoying that first movie. And I think the toll operates in a similar way. Yeah. And so Saw 2, of course, then they immediately realize that you can't just put another two characters into a room because we already, you know, now that we've seen the first one, we know everything about Jigsaw. We know that there's going to be these hiding in plain sight twists. So what do they do? They bring in a whole ensemble of characters and they turn it into more of a, you know, more about the character dynamics. And again, I think w without sort of making any pronouncements about kind of how successful those sequels were, I think you would need to do a, a take a similar approach to a sequel to this of, and I've even thought of in terms of kind of changing the the time setting. Like, could you have a, you know, so I'm intrigued by a prequel in the sense of maybe not even showing the origin of the Toll Man, but just taking it to another time period, especially since it's so influenced by, uh, you know, his, historical highwaymen. I think there's a lot of opportunities. You know, it's, it's about, like, it's such a movie about the perils of travel 
Um, and of course, using the modern version of that, which is rideshare, and you know, a young woman that's sort of afraid of flying and has a, a backstory that you know portends danger uh, with, with a strange man in her car. All of that, I think, works great in a contemporary setting. But I'm also curious, what's the you know? Can we get into the horrors and the the fears of the perils of traveling in a previous era? Because it is certainly has changed a lot. And so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And then, you know, seeing certainly expanding the sense of place. I don't think we would want to just stay in, in this one road. And I think you want, because again, I think you would want the second, if there's a, a sequel to do, to operate on the same level of surprise and, and thrills and uh, emotional engagement as the first. And that means you're going to have to expand the mythology. So I probably like again. I'm not really giving anything away, but I, that's, I'm giving you a very uh, in-depth look at my thought process there. And that brings me to my next question. Okay, the character that we see that meets up with Cammy and Spencer on the tractor. All right, uh, a lot is left up to interpretation with this woman. She could be a, mm-hmm. she could be a ghost. All right, she could be a spirit. She can be a living person that somehow uh, we don't know how gets into that little, I don't even know what to call it, repetitive, other dimensional uh, realm that Cammie and Spencer Mm. are in, and she just happened to go in and out. Um, You may not even have an answer for this, even though you created her, but did you just want to leave it for viewer interpretation for now? Or is there, do you know... This first of all, is this person alive or dead? Is she a ghost or not? If you can uh, answer, I think, yeah. I mean, in the writing of it, see, the thing is, I I don't want to shut it down. This is, you know, I always, I sort of hate when filmmakers equivocate like this. So I'm going to do something that I myself don't like. But because, of course, I did create it, and so I should have all the answers. To me. I think she's a living, real person. Okay. Um, that said, though, I I do think uh, art takes on new life. Like Art is a collaborative process between the creators and the audience. So on some level, I don't think I can necessarily definitively say, because it certainly, it absolutely is open. Like there, It's not definitively proven by any means. No other character interacts with her. Mm-hmm. So she certainly could be. And, and there's an interesting version of the movie where that's the case. I think to me, she is a real person because I like the idea that it is a brief instant of camaraderie that Cammy has with another woman in this world where who has also seemingly been through. Like, I feel like the idea is that she looks at Cammy and goes, I kind of know what's happening here and because I've been through it. And I think for her, there is, you know, the actress and I both had a similar idea of the experience that she might have gone through with the toll man. And it was another kind of a, another male in her life who was threatening, right? And yeah. so keep, keeping that as a something that's almost a brief, the briefest character bonding moment between her and Cammy, I do like. But maybe that can also work if she's a if she's a spirit. One of the fascinating things for me when it comes to that woman on the tractor, when she says, "Touch me," you'll see that I, you know it'll go through. Of course, yeah. that never happens. Uh, is that how you wrote it, or did you guys actually film it where Spencer or Cammy tries to touch her and the hand goes through her, and you just decided when you were editing it, you know what, it's better if we leave this out for now? 
it's it's written uh, precisely as you see it on screen. So, and there's two reasons for that. Okay. One is the the I think I anticipated that that visual. I think it's a more interesting idea than it is something to see mm-hmm. on screen. If that makes sense, I like the I love the idea of her just offering that and her reaching her hand out. Um, and so I think I was more enticed by that visual than I was. I think it would maybe look goofy if you tried to do it. Uh, and also a little cheesy, where, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Certainly to do it well, I think you would need uh, a really interesting take digital VFX-wise that I don't know that we had the mean for. The other reason I think the most important beat of that scene that I really like is that that gives Cammy an opportunity to prove that she is now starting to trust and actually like Spencer, because that's the first moment where, I mean, in, in general, that's the first scene in the movie where the two of them are on the same side. They're almost always opposed, um, even visually. But so they're on the same side. And then also she pulls him back as a way of saying, of trying to protect him. Right. And that is such a, I love the idea that you have this kind of unconscious. It's not, it, it, the attention is not called to it, but they progressively become closer throughout the movie just by virtue of going through this experience together. And so that's, the, I think, the essence of that moment when she, when the tractor woman reaches out her hand, really is more about Tammy and Spencer in that, in that scene. Okay, beautifully said. Now, uh, when you three guys, uh, you, Jordan, Max, were working together, uh, did they say, try to make any changes to your script that you thought were great or maybe you thought were not so great? Or did they strict, uh, stick... Uh, strictly to what you gave them to uh, their lines and didn't question anything? Uh, in terms of like on a macro level, they were, I mean, it, it, the entire process with respect to the script, they were really wonderful in a way that I wasn't even, you know, I, I think it would be very easy for a producer to want to kind of put their fingerprints on a script and also just to kind of enter into a bigger development process. And they were so trusting, and and I think it really helped that they responded so well to their first read of that of that script that they really felt like they wanted to preserve the experience they had of reading it. Um, some things changed, but it was all collaborative, and it was all kind of like we all knew there were certain things that were slightly too big budget, and so we all it was very kind of there, there were never any moments where I had had any sort of friction with what they wanted to do or change, and it was all very. You're all kind of on the same side. Certainly in terms of, I, I'm not a, um, I don't want actors to be married to dialogue that isn't going to, that isn't going to sound right coming out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. Every person and every actor is different. And there are certain things that just don't quite work for, for different people. That said, again, they were very, I mean, it's quite close to what you see in the movie. But in, in every case, I always very open to them changing it to be what they wanted it to be. And also certainly uh, I'm, so always eager for improv. Um, they both had great improv contributions, and I only am more able to summon Max's uh, by memory because they tend to be, Max is kind of just inherently a, has a comedian side to him. And he added a lot of humor in the moment to Spencer that was not on the page. And so again, it was they only ever were, were adding things. I mean, and, 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 yeah, and Max especially in finding a kind of a funny side to Spencer. Like just to give an example, when he when Tammy says, "Can you wait outside?" <sighs> the line when he when she gets in, his line is locked out of your own fucking car. And he added again <laughs> at the end of that line, which is such a like it's a small thing, but it just adds such a 
sort of question about what happened before that I just found hilarious. And he was he was really great at that kind of thing. One of the most powerful sequence of scenes in the movie for me was when Cammy was alone in the woods and the tall man is playing on her past trauma. Uh, the biggest line for me that really struck uh, just, it, you know, was powerful is when younger Cammy the you know it's a projection it's not actually real looks to real cammy and says tell me it gets better and uh cammy just looks down she can't tell her younger version of herself that life does get better than her current circumstances when you watch the final product did you like yeah that came out exactly the way i wanted it to Totally, yeah. I mean, that whole scene, and I'm so glad that that resonates with you because to me that is kind of the, that and the subsequent, you know, in particular, the, the two interactions that she has with her other self yeah. are kind of the thesis statement of the movie put together, starting with, or, or sort of the anti-thesis in the sense that uh, she, the toll man is essentially telling her in both these interactions, it's never going to get better. You're trapped in the world of the toll man forever. Um, and the kind of ultimate statement of the movie is, as she's being driven away, that she realizes that that was wrong and that she realizes that there is something good out there and she's leaving the darkness behind her. But I think that was a really, I mean, that was a critically important scene and really hard, right? I mean, that's especially, in, and, you know, you point out the younger Cammy scene, it's just a very challenging thing in that Jordan is acting opposite a double, essentially, in both, in both uh, setups. So she's acting opposite a double who's doubling as her younger self and then reverse. And so she's not, it's a really, it's a major acting challenge that I think she pulled off Amazing. incredibly well. Amazing, and yes. Yeah. And that whole sequence, she's phenomenal. And it, it was incredibly just challenging. That day was, was just a really difficult day because the subject matter obviously is so grave. And, you know, we had, you know, I was communicating to everybody on set that we needed to have a very kind of somber attitude. And we tried to keep Jordan sort of away from the set because, even as she started to like walk up the bed, she was getting very emotional and, it, you know, we kind of wanted to save that. Um, I mean, it really, you know, it's like some, there's some elaborate setups in that scene and, uh, and she's kind of getting these amazing, she has such incredible emotion pouring out of her on the first or second take. Um, so we had to be really careful about not doing too many takes. So, you know, I think she, she really blew that scene away. So yeah, when I, when I watch it, I, it, it very much has a, the, the effect on me that I, I remember the just sort of thinking about it and writing it having on me when I wrote it. It was great. Uh, when uh, the uh, sense that we get after watching that sequence with Cammy, with her younger self, and in particular with her older self, is that the toll man prefers for his victims to take their own lives. And that w that's what he does. He uses their pain and sort of entices them to kill themselves. Uh, is that his method of collecting souls, uh, for lack of a better term? Or he doesn't care, either kill yourself or kill each other, I'm taking one of you. It's whatever is, is sort of the most effective. It's kind of whatever death is closest at any given time is what he's gonna be trying to pull toward him. And so for that reason, you see his tactics change throughout the movie, right, where he first, is trying really hard because, you know, he is using the fact that she's suspicious of him from the get-go and is afraid that he might kill her. 
duly so. Mm-hmm. So he's immediately tapping into that and trying to trigger her to kill him in self-defense. Once he he kind of wins that battle, right, of convincing her he's innocent, then the next thing is she has, you know, she's already close enough in her pain and her despair. That's the next angle that he takes, right? And so it, and then finally, one of the, you know, hardest things for the toll man to convince either of them of is that is to convince Spencer that he can do exactly what he's been wanting to do without any retribution. So that's the final tactic, which then, which Spencer then takes. Another question that we're left with, uh, with uh, as viewers, is was Spencer aware of the Tall Man mythology? Did he take that turn on the road that Cammy's like, "Whoa, you're going the wrong way"? Did he do that on purpose, or did it was it his GPS telling him to go this way as he explained, and he had no idea of the Tall Man? But it fed him into the perfect circumstances of what a psychopath wants, uh, a victim in an isolated area where they can do what they want to do. So, yeah, I, I this one I think I can sort of definitively rule out uh, the other interpretation, which is he definitely does not know about the poor man. Okay. And, is, and, and part of that is critical to the story because for him to, I mean, some of the, the, the dialogue moments that where I'm hoping that that's conveyed is when he says, and obviously it's, there's a lot, it's an intense scene, so it's, it's kind of easy to miss it. But when he, he says, at first I thought he was trying to punish me, like that's the sort of, he is going into this knowing nothing, except that he's on his way to kill his next victim. And when he's, when, you know, if you sort of like look at it from that perspective, he's on his way to kill his next victim, and then crazy things start happening that are preventing him from doing that. So his first thought is going to either be I've been caught or this is divine punishment. Yeah. And so he then has to be convinced by the toll man that it's neither of those things. So so in that sense, and, and obviously, you know, the whole reason why the toll man brings them in is because he is in the, that vicinity and he's already he's so close to killing her that it's the proximity to death that brings them in and that then traps them in the world of the toll. Excellent. Well, very well put. Now, we only have a few minutes left. I want to spend just a little bit of time. Uh, You're a young man, extremely successful. You just have this great movie that just came out. It's going to get rave reviews. As I tell everybody, history, as the tall man, you know, gets older and older, it's going to be put in a category by itself. Uh, For young up-and-coming writers, directors, what was your biggest break and what advice would you give to somebody who does want to break into writing? Uh, writing, let's just stick with writing. There are a lot of writers out there. What advice would you give them? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think so much advice has been conveyed by so many other great writers. And I think everything about the craft that has already been said in terms of you need to be writing if you want to write and you need to uh, read as much as humanly possible. These are all kind of at this point uh, uh, trite pieces of advice, but very true. My advice that I feel like doesn't get said enough that I think is crucial is that it's really about to make it, if you want people to see your work, it starts with creating relationships with people in the industry. And and that's not about networking. I mean, I think this is the thing I want to sing from the rooftop is to not look at it as networking or as trying to use people for something, but as I think I just don't think it can work if you are operating 
that kind of in a Machiavellian way. You have to be looking to make friends. And also you should be looking for people that need things that you can provide them. So if you find an executive that's looking for a certain kind of story that you happen to have, you know, or you even just are finding it, you meet an executive who needs, I mean, just as an example, I interned for this awesome exec who's now a close friend. He was my boss. And in the semesters following my internship, he needed interns. And I was continually, I kept in touch with him by basically saying, you should use this friend of mine who's an awesome reader and writer. And I just kept giving, he needed interns. And I basically, and I also, my friends needed internships. So it was all like, it was a whole self-reinforcing thing. He was essentially the first person that gave me my, he was a VP by the time I graduated. He read one of my scripts really liked it and that's how i ended up getting representation so it's all about finding those friendships absolutely and i completely agree with you uh i just passed my one year anniversary of doing this show and i'm one year into this industry and i would say without a doubt the most important thing is to build up your connections okay just because you come across someone that is not any way associated with writing does not mean you ignore them. No, everybody, every connection you make in this industry, because this industry is actually a lot smaller than people think. It's yeah. it's not that, you know, everybody knows somebody and the connections are yeah. there, but I totally agree with you. Connections is number one and we are out of time. Michael, this hour, has just flown by. It's been absolutely fascinating. I learned so much. Um, You have so much brilliant stuff that I am looking forward to seeing coming from you. Uh, Personally, I really would love to see another Toll movie. I hope it comes to fruition. I hope you get to write it. I hope you get to direct it and make it any way you want you you've shown us in the original the the one that's out that you have a great imagination you know exactly how to tell a story and you know exactly how to direct it so congratulations on a great movie awesome thank you fantastic it's been my absolute pleasure having you any final thoughts you want to share with our audience just want to say thank you so much for having me and giving me such a great forum to get to to talk about the movie. I, it's been fantastic. So, yeah, thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back in the air tomorrow with uh, William Brent. Uh, uh, sorry, William Brent Bell, who's gonna was another writer, director, and producer. So please tune in for that. Michael, thank you. Till tomorrow, guys. Remember, stay walking. Good night.